that was the only time I actually cross country skied to, to an actual birth. And I felt my entire vehicle got lifted up and moved like into the opposite lane. He's like, Hey, uh, there's a medevac flight leaving Nome right now. And I got you a ride back. I stepped outside and the sky was green and I could hear the tornado. We all breathe the same air, said John F. Kennedy. In Western esoteric and New Age traditions, the entirety of the world's energy has five associated elements, namely earth, fire, water, air, and spirit. Today, we focus on air. The air element corresponds in Eastern parts of creation. It symbolizes a vast network of vital breath from the winds that brought the universe into being to the first cry of a newborn baby or first breath of life, even the own. Where earth is fixed, air is most definitely a mover. It is also connected to the mind, wisdom, spirits, and the soul. Classical Greek philosophy separated the air element into the atmosphere where we live and a higher region above the clouds where they wrote about as air. It was the lower form versus ether, something filled with light energy. Aristotle went so far as to consider ether something that created celestial spheres. In sacred geometry, the symbol for air is the octahedron, cementing the air element between fire and water alchemically. Now, before that sounds overwhelming, remember that the Greeks loved sounding lofty. On a much simpler level, this means that air energy can work with fire or water, and it also can become an intermediary or a bridge between the two. In Hindu writings, the word for wind is vata, which means to blow. This is also a second word, prana, that symbolizes the breath of life. Prana is a father god, and his breath is one of the five sacred elements of this religious tradition. The element of air is an excellent representation of our spiritual faith. Air reminds us that there is so much more to this world than we can see, and also teaches that we must grow and change as the world does likewise. William Arthur Ward said, The pessimist complains about the wind. The optimist expects it to change. But the realist just adjusts their sails. We cannot capture or tame the air, but we certainly know it's with us. It can be tempestuous or still or as gentle as a puff on a birthday candle. Welcome back to the second episode in the podcast mini-series called Midwives and the Elements. And join us as we listen to midwives as they share their battle through and with this omnipresent element. For our first story, we're starting in Alaska because midwives in Alaska don't just have long drives. They also sometimes have long flights. This is the story of taking two flights to catch a baby. I am Jennifer Cave and I am a midwife um, in Alaska. I practice in Soldotna, Alaska. I run a birth center here. I have been in the state here since 2010. I practiced in the Philippines before that. So we get lots of fun, um, drive around in snowstorms, of course. Uh, but one time I was serving a family out in Nome, Alaska, which people who are familiar with the Iditarod understand where that is. It's very remote. This was their third baby with me. And so we made a plan and they called me when... She went into labor, and of course, there was no flights that night. So I got on the very first flight, like 5 a.m. the next morning, to head to Nome from Anchorage, Alaska. I should preface that I'm a little bit fearful of flying. My parents, unfortunately, died in a plane crash when I was in my 20s, um, but I did grow up flying. So... <clears throat> Anyways, Nome is not the best airport to fly into. It's one of those runways that's one shot. And so we fly. It's about two hour flight. And it's foggy and they let us know that it could be a little rough landing. 
So when we come down under the fog, we're not lined up with the airport strip. And so they basically just go straight back up, right? So it's uh, a little bit like, oh my gosh, um, <laughs> get your adrenaline running. And then uh, they attempt this three times. By the third time, I thought I might lose, well, my sanity or something. Um, because literally you can see nothing until you're like, it feels like feet away from the runway and then you're not lined up and then they just go straight up into the air. And so it's a little bit, um, nerve wracking. And so by the time they announced that we're turning back around, we're going back to Anchorage. Sorry. You know, I'm like, well, this mom's been in labor at this point for, you know, 12 hours or so. I'm not going to make this birth. I'm in first class. There's free drinks. We'll just say a couple were consumed. I get back to the Anchorage airport. Like, I'm still shaking from this whole ordeal. And I'm literally sitting on the bathroom toilet. And the dad calls me. Now, the dad is a medevac pilot. The mom is a medevac nurse. And I'm, like, finishing peeing in a stall. Sorry to be crass. But that's what I'm doing when he calls me. He's like, hey, uh, there's a medevac flight leaving Nome right now. So in a couple hours, it's going to be turning around and coming back. And I got you a ride back on this medevac flight, which means I didn't just go in a regular commercial airplane. Now I'm going in a small plane that basically seats, you know, four people in a stretcher. <clears throat> so I'm like, oh, fantastic. As I'm like, oh, I think I should probably drink some coffee and such before I drive over to this other part of the airport so that I can get on this other plane. So. Thankfully, a few hours had passed and I get on this plane. I may have done a lot of praying because it's a rough flight. The weather's not fantastic. There's a lot of bouncing around in that little plane. We do land safely. By this time, it's evening. So, I mean, I started the journey. I had to leave my home, I think, at 4 a.m. And I want to say it's like 5 p.m. now. By the time I land in Nome, the mom is still laboring just a little bit. And... They sit me down. I get a bowl of soup, which is like my first food of the day. I have a bowl of soup and legitimately her water breaks. And it was like game on, you know, baby. So <laughs> I was like, I think that baby waited for me. Um, but it was, yeah, definitely. And then, of course, when I went to leave the town, I couldn't get out for a couple of days because it was too foggy. So, yeah, it's definitely a fun. Yeah, I don't do flight type of flying births hardly ever <laughs> you can come to me now i have a birth center let's go now to colorado and listen from longtime midwife candace who not only set out 40 years ago to attend a birth in a snowstorm but she braved her way through blowing winds on skis let's listen in my name is Candace Joanne. I'm a certified nurse midwife. I've been a nurse for 50 years and a nurse midwife for greater than 47 years. So um, I've had a variety of experiences. I'd like to tell you a story about when uh, I was in Colorado. Um, it's more than 40 years past. At that time, I was doing home births as well as a couple of other part-time jobs. The reason why we left the East Coast to go to this area in Colorado, it's in Southern Colorado in Huerfano County. We left because my husband had family, some extended family there. They were all getting very old and he wanted their history. So that's how I ended up leaving um, a university and then a private practice to go to that area. So it's pretty remote. It was a very established community of ranchers, wide diversity of people there. Um, they might have a, a mixed uh, Hispanic, maybe some native. Uh, there was a whole uh, a lot of people who had joined communes. And at that time that I was there, the communes weren't functioning completely, but it still was uh, more community than it was um, the massive communes. They had divided up into smaller family units. 
I ended up working at a small clinic called La Clinica. And there we provided some basic uh, healthcare services. We checked on people. They dropped by our house if they had a problem. And we also did some births at that time. So this story is about a birth where I was living in a part. It was not right in the Gardner area. It was a little bit away from there, a place called Chama, way out in the country. I was called to birth. Remember, we didn't have cell phones. <laughs> so there were elaborate ways where people told us. And I can't remember now how I got notified. I think at that time, had just gotten a phone put in. And so maybe they were able to actually call me at my house. Um, but it, we'd had a major snort, a snowstorm, and it was going to be hard to get to a birth. Um, it was a young couple, a young Hispanic couple. They were kind of out, way out in the country, and they had not cleared the roads from this major snowstorm that we had. So I ended up having to backpack my gear and actually my husband accompanied me because we had i carried things like oxygen tanks and you know some emergency equipment just in case so it's kind of heavy to carry when you're trying to balance yourself on cross-country skis to get there it had stopped the blizzard was over but it was still really windy i just remember that so um i was grateful for his help to get you know to go with me to get out to there area. I can't remember exactly how far we skied, but it, it was a little bit of a trip. As far as the birth was concerned, it was a young couple. Uh, again, this was more than 40 years ago. I remember everything went very normally. It was a good family experience. Often, you know, an extended family will be there. Usually at our home births, we either had, there was a um, an RN who would usually come, or sometimes we had a family doctor who also sometimes would also go. So we tried to have two people as much as possible. Coming home was a little bit easier. I think by that time they cleared roads and I, and, uh, so I didn't have to ski home. I remember for that particular birth, I was paid with a, a pile of pinyon. <laughs> We still bartered a little bit there. You know, a lot of people didn't have a lot of extra money. Um, not all of them were on Medicaid or had any insurance. Or, and actually, the clinic was a, a sort of a donation-run clinic anyway. So I got paid it with a pile of wood that actually ended up breaking our mall. We had to go get out and get another another mall because it was so hard. Um, so that's that's the main thing I remember from that birth. We we certainly had many times where it was hard to get to people. Most of the time I did go by car, um, but the roads were dirt roads often and um, pretty rough. But that was the only time I had to ski to a birth. I had, I skied once to my job at Planned Parenthood before, but. Um, I, that was the only time I actually cross-country skied to, to an actual birth. Take a quick break from this yummy episode, and let's talk about the midwifery wisdom experience. Why do midwives conference? And yes, I say it kind of like a verb, but that's exactly because it's a lot of freaking work to go to a conference. You have to take time off call. You have to take time away from your family. You have to spend money flying or driving or training and staying in a hotel. And sometimes it's not always what you expect it to be because really we expect our time away from all of those things to be incredible. You know what? We expect it to be an experience. And to be honest, in my opinion, that's exactly what the 2023 Midwifery Wisdom Experience held in November, Denver, Colorado is. I conference because I like to fangirl. I like to get a chance to drink a French 75 with Christine Loria or talk about balancing with Nicole Morales in a hotel room, right? I conference because I want to be around the people that I follow on social media, but for it to be real life. A conference to get the CEUs and to be there for the applica 
inability of the learning. I want to take it away. I want to go back. I want to bring my community to this community, but that community home. But really, I gotta say, last year in 2022, the Midwifery Wisdom Experience felt like being at the best part of the births while being away from births. The energy, the space full of midwives and birth workers was like no other. While we're sold out of skills and drills in the 2023 retreat, the Midwifery Wisdom Conference tickets are still available, including the post-conference workshops. If you haven't already, go ahead and check us out, midwiferywisdom.com experience. Why do you conference? Find out this November in Denver. Well, I've got a story for you now. I used to practice in Oregon and I was called to assist a number of midwives over the years. One time in the middle of August, one of the hottest on records, I got called out to assist a newer midwife with one of her primate clients. Southern Oregon, right at the California border about 11 miles or so from the California border, is hot in the summer. Uh, It's a little bit at elevation, but it just sort of bakes. It's not at all like, you know, really extraordinary San Francisco weather. And the further north you go, before you hit the rainforest of Washington, it is hot, highland desert kind of feel. If you've ever looked up temperatures for Redding, California, very similar. It is 100 all summer. Now it's dry, so it's a dry kind of a heat, but it is hot. And this young woman had been laboring all day um, as a first-time mom doing what first-time moms do, sitting and standing and laying and walking and talking and eating. And she was especially drinking. And she was drinking because her midwife and her mama and her husband were all encouraging her to, quote, stay hydrated in this heat. And so this is part of the air episode because uh, the heat, the air around us can change everything. So I didn't arrive until after dark because our deal with backing each other up is that usually the backup midwife arrives around transition so that we don't exhaust each other. We can save some of those long labor hours that just need watchful attention and careful assistance. We can, we can save that for one person. And um, this midwife and I had a mutual student between us, um, two students actually, and so uh, one of them, this was her first birth, that she was attending with us as a new student and the other was more experienced. We sat together, the mom had been in the tub and had gone into her room and we were sitting and visiting and we had some watermelon. It was still quite hot, even though the sun had gone down. And I saw two jugs of, two empty jugs that, that looked like milk jugs but they had water labels on them. And so I just sort of laughingly inquired, like, who's been drinking all this water? And the new student spoke up and she said, oh, the mom has. And I looked at her kind of like confused. I was like, this mom has drank two gallons of water today? And she enthusiastically nodded. The senior, the the other midwife was in the room taking heart tones or being with her. And I had this experience, like when I remember it now, I think back to that time, that moment, and it's like slow motion. Like, you know, whenever you have something where you can like see something coming, you can't move fast enough. Like you can't, you don't feel like you're, you're present enough. And so as I was looking at this student with this like really puzzled, worried look on my face, I started to hear um, the other midwife 
scream. And so I like, again, it's like in molasses in my mind as I'm like running towards the bedroom being like, I see the problem. Um, so I went into the room and the mother is having a full grand mal seizure and she has bitten her tongue and her mouth is bleeding and her body is convulsing. And the midwife had just checked her cervix and she was, you know, just nine with a little lip. Um, and she had felt pressure. And so she was getting ready to deliver. I kind of, again, everything moved too slow. I couldn't um, really fully get out the words, but I, the, the solution that I could come up with that in a moment, cause she, of course she can't eat any salt. She, she's hyponatremic, right? She's got, she's floated her liver. She has, doesn't have enough salt. Um, and now she's seizing. And so I directed the new student to call 911 and I helped to contain her, restrain her during her seizure. And gosh, that can be the longest time of your life. And it ended up being a, at least, at least a five minute seizure. And it honestly could have been seven or eight minutes. She shook violently and was unreachable, unconscious for what just felt, felt like forever. I tried to place an IV during that time because I was thinking we can at least get some lactated ringers in that has cell salt, including sodium. But she was so violent um, in her shaking that it was impossible for me to stabilize an arm during that time. Um, the paramedics came very quickly, but in this, and there, I really I should say EMS, emergency medical service, none of them were paramedics. Um, in this rural region of Oregon, it's a volunteer fire department, essentially, that shows up as EMS. And they had an ambulance and they were big, strong men willing to help, but they had no medical knowledge, certainly nothing that would know more than what we knew. I helped move her and we all helped move her. It took every one of us to get her onto the gurney and out the door. And I was like, you can place an IV on the way. We are moving now. Um, I was listening to heart tones and the baby was still in the 120s. Once we were in the ambulance, her seizure ceased, but she was incredibly combative post-seizure and not conscious in the way that you would expect someone to be. She grunted, but she didn't make, you know, she didn't complete words or sentences and she wouldn't allow us to do um, any kind of placement. Um, the EMTs were able to kind of lay across her to hold one arm to get an, an, to get an IV in. And they would help me kind of get heart tones. But she was um, very combative and very unconscious in her actions and behavior. While we were in the ambulance, I called ahead to the hospital. And I got the doc on call for walk-ins um, and I was able to communicate to her the situation. And luckily, I guess it was either my use of SBAR or the urgency, the emergency of the tone of voice I was using. But usually this incredibly dismissive and almost punitive hospital system, this particular doctor in it really heard me and heard what needed to happen. And I told her, like, I have just checked the baby, you know, she, these, these combative grunty moves. Her body is still pushing and her baby is just inside, plus two, maybe even almost visible at the introitus. And uh, I highly recommend, given this situation, that you vacuum the baby out and not take her back for a cesarean. And uh, this is what I think it is. And um, I think an urgent delivery will happen if you just, if you just use this vacuum. And so she agreed. Um, it was a 45 minute transport. We were very far in the rural Oregon countryside. When we got to the hospital, the ambulance drivers who had been working with me the whole time, the baby's heart rate was in the 110s by that point. We had a few dips into the hundreds, but to me, I felt like that was okay given that there was so much head compression because her you know her legs were fully together she was laying on her back and there was a head fully in her pelvis so that level of um of 
of, you know, early D cells felt fine to me. Um, I was really hopeful that the baby um, was as good as he sounded. And so um, the ambulance driver, the ambulance folks, again, volunteer folks, really helped be my muscle. And most of the EMS stories I have are quite devastating and actually um, dangerous in the way that they try to take charge of a situation and discount the midwife's knowledge and skill. But these guys, without very much other than some volunteer weekend hours, they really knew how to help. And they helped get us all the way up to the OB floor, standing in front of the OB. They wouldn't leave me. They helped. Like we bypassed the ER protocols and just got right to OB. And the OB doc listened. And it took 12 of us in the room um, to help get her baby out. And this is like one of the most devastating uh, memories of my midwifery career. The mother has no memory of this because like I said, she was not quote unquote in her right mind. She was not conscious for this. She was fully in a post seizure disordered thinking. Um, she was so hyponatremic that she did not have enough uh, brain cells actually firing. We need the salt water of our blood and our fluids in order to transmit neurological signals. And she didn't have enough of that. So she didn't lay down any memory of this experience. But there were 12 people forcing her legs apart, holding them back, pinning her to the bed. And it was a very traumatic image. Um, and the doc was able to cut an episiotomy and vacuum the baby out within um, I don't know, a contraction or two very quickly within minutes of arriving. And the baby was taken to NICU and the mom was taken to ICU without even being sutured. Um, and they started labs on both of them and then were able to confirm my hunch that she had this hyponatremic experience. They were able to give her IV fluids that were hypertonic, so more salt than the body normally has in order to counteract her um, hyponatremic state. And she became conscious by the next morning. They give it very slowly so that it doesn't, you know, cause damage. Um, but she was eventually repaired and sedated and then um, slowly brought back to consciousness and stayed in ICU for about three days to manage her liver function. And that evening, the baby started having seizures as well and was treated in the NICU as well um, and was actually flown to a different hospital. And so it wasn't until about four days postpartum that mother and baby were reunited and that the midwives got to go and talk with them again. Um, and I did not, I was not part of that initial consult because I wasn't her midwife, but I was a part of the postpartum processing um, around six weeks or so and i think the biggest like remember like the biggest memory of this experience was just like the shock the shock and awe i think the shock from the midwifery team myself included i had read about this but i had never seen it this is my first time seeing hyponatremia in in firsthand and the student and the other midwives they they had never even heard of this and um the parents obviously the grandmother who was there like it was just shock and awe and this real sadness at having missed the miracle. Um, obviously, uh, the husband was not in the ambulance. He was driving in another vehicle, so he missed the birth. The mom was unconscious, missed the birth. The baby was airlifted away. And it was just such a crazy experience, all from the cause of hot weather and hot air and living in this trailer with no air conditioning in the middle of a hot, hot summer. It was 106, 107, 110 that whole week. And I think she was doing what she thought was best. She was staying hydrated. And um, ever since then, yeah, I've just sort of made it my mission to be like, hydration without cell salts is dangerous. And so, yeah, that's my story about the air. Have you ever had to drive through a tornado to get to a birth? Well, Chris has. Chris takes us to Minnesota, which is not known for tornadoes, but headed to this birth, 
there definitely was one and it was so powerful it picked up her car let's listen well, I'm Chris Devins. I am a licensed midwife, CPM, both in Minnesota and in Texas. The majority has been in Minnesota. That's where I was trained. And then we moved to Texas almost two years ago where I took over a birth center. So doing both birth center and home birth now, but previously um, all of my training as well as the beginning of, of my calling has all been at home. So that's really where my passion is. Um, it was, I, that's the thing is I don't even remember the date, but, um, I feel like I have a pretty good story, uh, um, about what happened in some turbulence basically. So, um, we lived in a really small town, about 4,000 people. And so this was in the middle of Minnesota and which of course is not exactly known for tornadoes or anything, but we do get to them. Um, and both my husband and I, are actually EMTs. He's a paramedic now, but um, we we're both EMTs on our local service. So I also had my radio with me because <clears throat> we were listening to that and it was going off like crazy. We're trying, you know, to listen because on the EMS front, um, even if we're not directly on a call, um, we go out if, if we need to, right? Kind of in the middle of that, I had one of my repeat mamas. Um, it was her fifth baby and she was known to go pretty fast and was about 45 minutes for me. And she started texting me like, pretty sure this is it. Of course, she had lots of the prodromal on and off stuff. So we had lots of like false call business. Is it, isn't it, you know, kind of. And I'm like going, okay, of course, during the storm, like pressure changes, like why not, right? It became pretty evident fairly quickly, like pretty sure this is actually going to be a thing. And so as I'm listening to dispatch, um, the area that I actually needed to go through was right where um, uh, train spotters had seen a tornado and it was coming through the area. And the winds had really, really picked up um, at our house. Crap was blown around, um, but they were saying that like the tornado area was about 20 minutes south or, or something like that. And I had to go about 20 minutes south and then about another 20, 25 to the east in order to get to this mama's house and so as she was making it known that it was like i really better be on my way i was trying to keep track um, by listening to dispatch and, and the people that were out out watching this nonsense um i was i was trying to get behind it is <laughs> what i was trying to do um best laid plans of course and at the time i had a minivan and so not the lightest but not the heaviest vehicle but I, I felt pretty safe and I'm like I'm gonna take my radio with me so that I can stay updated um the roads there were even though it's rural these were these are like the most traveled highways in the area so figure you know they should be pretty clear well traveled like you know not too sketchy I guess and so I decided to head out what I Thought was kind of behind this mess and as I was driving south I was dodging huge branches that kind of thing I could I could feel the van like shaking like crazy and this mama's you know calling me texting me and she's like okay well now our power went out um and and they lived in a big house with a basement and she's like so we brought all the birth supplies down to the basement. We have the candles, like, so we can see, like, we have all the other kids down here with us. And I'm like, well, this is, it's not great, but it's not awful. I, you know, I think I'm going to be okay. I, I'm trying to follow this. And um, obviously I wasn't trying to get myself in the middle of a tornado. That, that wasn't my idea of a good time that day. Um but anyways, try just trying to get there as safely as I can. And we kind of got to that point where I felt pretty confident I was fine, but she was more worried about me than she was about having your baby. And I remember her texting me and just saying, you know what? We can get this baby ourselves. Like, it's all right. We just want you to be safe. <laughs> and, and they're in the dark, in a basement, you know, with, with nothing but obviously their birth kit that they had prepared. And I'm just like, I mean, that's also not my favorite. Like, obviously, sometimes we miss births, usually by minutes and that kind of thing. And we always, you know, have the, well, if it happens without us, 
it, it's everything really probably is fine, right? Those are the bars where you're like, it, it just was so right that it just happened fast, you know? At the same time, I'm like picturing, okay, well, if I don't get there and then there is, you know, some big disaster and they have problems and no one can get to them, that's also not reassuring, right? So anyways, drive straight south and I get to the team where now I'm going to turn and go east and... I, I do that and I could tell that the wind shifted, like something shifted. But as I was listening to dispatch, it sounded like I should have been fine. Like besides dodging all the branches and trees and all that stuff that was all over the ground, it was more the paying attention to the de- debris hazard. And there really wasn't anyone else on the road. Imagine that. So I, I felt pretty good and start driving east. And I'm thinking, okay, like, you know how when you're going to a berth and you're like, okay, your, your G- you know how to get there, but your GPS is on anyways so that you can like be telling the family, like, I am 12 minutes out. I am, you know, like, this is where I'm at. And she's like, I'm starting to feel pushy. And I'm like, oh, of course you are, you know? Um, and I think I was about 15 to 20 minutes out something like that and i felt my entire vehicle got lifted up and moved like into the opposite lane picked up and sat back down (laughs) and there was that moment of like okay like that just happened like like you can't i don't know when you're in it you, you just are like i don't even think i believe that that was just the thing um but it did happen and then you know you feel like you're gonna vomit because you get all that adrenaline i'm like do I keep going, but now I can't probably go backward. Like, you know, you have your life kind of flashes before your eyes and you're like, I don't know, you know, but it didn't happen again. I kept going. It it was just one of those where it feels like you're driving a bus with straight line winds going the opposite direction and just shaking, you know, the crap out of your vehicle. Everything dispatch said, though, I was like, the storm was in front of me. So so anyways, I made it to their house and we had a baby within like five, 10 minutes, but actually um, was really quick. She did wait for me. In fact, the electricity came on and they were coming up the stairs because she's like, even though I can have the baby in this basement, it's just really an environment that I want to be in. And I really think, of course, that had there not been this crazy tornado and all of that, that um, she would have had her baby sooner i would have imagined you know um i think that obviously just kind of scared (laughs) scared baby to stay in even though i was impressed she was super super calm and just like it's okay it'll be fine you just be safe um which is which is fun because you know mama's prioritizing the midwife even though she's doing her hardest work of her life right it's kind of like being on ice you know, where, I mean, I that too, where like, you can't keep the vehicle on the road and you're like, you know, you want to turn your wheel and be in control, but like everything else in life. And what do we tell our mamas all the time? Like, we can't be in control of this. Like, you know, we, we, we don't have that ability. And the more we tried to control it, what happens? Like the worst it goes for us, right? So we got to let go and accept it. And like, like whatever happens, happens and if the baby comes before i get there that's how it's meant to be and if i make it there that's what's meant to be right we have to work together to figure out what to do next sometimes and that's particularly scary and challenging in the midst of weather disasters here's our last story and we're going to go to oklahoma with midwife katie my name is katie Augustine. Um, I've been a midwife for five years now, and I believe it was my first year of practice. So I um, was practicing with my partner midwife who had trained me. Um, She had been my preceptor. She is an amazing, she's trained so many amazing midwives. So I was so honored to also then have the opportunity to work with her. And this was a repeat client for her. Mom was G a G6, so these were babies 6 and 7. Um, her primary delivery had been a cesarean, which I don't remember all the details, but remember it was kind of a, a classic um, snowball of interventions, hospital cesarean. So she had gone on to have, I believe, one VBAC in the hospital and then 
several VBACs with my partner, my midwife. So this pregnancy was a twin pregnancy, a surprise twin pregnancy, die-die girl twins. Um, mom was just about as healthy as it gets. She was amazing. I mean, just a dream, dream diet. I wish I could eat as well as she did. She had all the things um, and really had a very standard pregnancy. The twins really didn't complicate her pregnancy at all. And so she progressed well. So we were just, you know, very hopeful that we would get her to that 37 week mark, which we did. Um, she had gone to some pretty late post dates with her singletons. And so we didn't feel like we would be surprised if she went to at least 40 weeks, but around 38 and some change, she started leaking some fluid and um, called us over just to kind of check on her and see how things were going, listen to the babies. Um, she was very confident in her decision to have a home birth with her twins, but also wanted to make sure that she was doing her due diligence and having us come check on her. So I think Amber went and checked on her, listened to the babies, and then she started contracting. And so we went over a little bit earlier than we would maybe for a singleton. Um, but we just wanted to be there, support her. We were really excited as well. We had a great team. We had three midwives, two senior students, and one um, kind of beginner student. So we had a lot of hands on board and we're kind of assigning roles for everyone. Uh, mom's labor progressed really beautifully. And so she got in the tub. Twin, we had known that um, presenting twin A was cephalic. Um, I do not believe we did a vaginal exam before the first twin because we had trusted that baby was cephalic and things were progressing normally and baby was born cephalic in the tub. Really just beautiful, easy push baby out, came up to her chest. And then this is where things got a little weird. Not with mom. She was doing great. We listened to baby B. Baby B sounded great. Um, we just kind of let them have some time in the tub. But all of our phones were starting to kind of get, go off. Um, we also had a doula who was a family friend there. And I think it was her that first started realizing that there was a tornado in the area. Now, being from the Midwest, we all were like probably a little too relaxed about the idea of a tornado because they happen and you hear the sirens go um and i actually think we we're i don't even think we did hear the sirens go in this occasion i think we we're a little further out but we're like okay well we'll just you know keep an eye on it and we we're giving mom time with baby baby got latched listening to baby b doing all the vitals but everything was very calm in terms of the delivery um we were just giving baby b some time to um get down into the pelvis and figure out how they were going to come out and then I remember um, we were starting to get more messages from local area people of trucks being flipped on the freeway from this tornado and um, roofs flying off and some real damage um, as opposed to maybe something a little bit lighter. So we decided that we needed to get everyone into the basement. Thankfully, this home did have a basement. So... It is so challenging in these circumstances to protect mom's birth space and to protect her mental space. We have a twin that's still in utero and a twin that's out. And we know that obviously we want to keep mom as calm and and really protect her as much as possible while also kind of shuffling her, all of our equipment and all her other kids and husband and everyone down into the basement. And um, so we tried to do that just kind of as calmly as we all could. We did not get the birth up down into the basement. That had to stay upstairs. But I remember um, we kind of got everyone in the basement and I went out to grab something from my car, um, some piece of equipment I was looking for. Yeah, I don't remember what. And I stepped outside and the sky was green and I could hear the tornado. And it was that sound, hearing the wind. I couldn't see it, um, but I could hear it. And that 
I've experienced a lot of tornado warnings and got out of the basement and whatnot, but hearing that tornado, that was really freaky. And so we went down in the basement and we stayed there, I want to say about an hour, and we were listening to Baby and Baby B was sounding great, but it wasn't a very conducive environment for mom to really labor again. She was having contractions here and there. I want to say they're like 20 minutes apart. But we also were trying to kind of speak privately, not that we were excluding mom from our conversation, but just of like, what are we, what are we going to do? We are, you know, we're very aware that we still are in the middle of a delivery and that we safety for mom, for baby needs to be our priority. But how do we in this kind of crusty basement make this conducive for for twin um, B? There wasn't even really like anywhere for her to lie down. She's going to lie on her side, but she felt more comfortable kind of being up and around. We did, um, but maybe before we went downstairs, so we did um, cut baby A's cord so that baby A could be kind of passed around um, after um, we'd had plenty of time for that cord to be nice and white and flat for us to get baby A and she nursed and passed around and we weren't really progressing in, in terms of labor and, and, but baby A sounded great. And so I think we were in the basement for at least an hour, if not longer before we really got the all clear to move back upstairs. And so we did eventually move back upstairs and we checked mom. Uh, we did a vaginal exam at this point because we, we started to, feel that clock ticking of like okay now that we're out of this tornado um and I mean tornadoes are unpredictable they can turn around sometimes but we felt like we were safe enough to to come back upstairs we got to get this baby delivered and so we were using an ultrasound to try to determine baby's position that was part of our challenge was that we weren't feeling like externally we could really confidently say what baby position was baby had been transverse um prior to baby a's delivery or at least at her last appointment and so amber did um a vaginal exam and then asked me to follow behind her and basically as we do the vaginal exam we could feel that um little foot and a plantar reflex just wrap right around our fingers and it was honestly one of the cooler things that I've experienced in midwifery although in the moment you're it's a little it's a little bit frightening but we it, but it was a very neat thing to experience uh, mom was still fully dilated at, even after a few hours at this point um, and all of the drama of getting down in the basement coming back up out of the basement but we did make the decision at that point that we needed to help this baby out a little bit. And so we knew mom was still, we talked about, do we go, do we go into the hospital at this point, which we know is going to be a cesarean, um, especially with a mom with a history of uh, cesarean, or do we um, work on getting this baby out at home? And we had all just done um, breach training with um dr stew and dr hayes and rixa freeze and so we had just practiced a breach extraction maneuver and so we decided that we felt that that would be a good option for this mom um, we talked to her about that and she wanted to um, proceed with that now i will say all of these things that you practice in seminars and conferences we can never really simulate the real thing it's it's hard work getting a breech baby B out. It was a lot um, more, you just had to work a lot harder than we really can simulate in any kind of non-direct um, simulation, if that makes sense. And so you know, um, we got all ready and we were, and Amber broke her water. So water had been intact for baby B still. Amber broke her water. And on reflection, something we realized is that when you um, break the water, then you get very wet. And so that does not give you a conducive way to get a grip on baby. And so um, she was working to try to get baby down 
um, as we had mom pushing, we didn't really have great contractions, unfortunately. And so then after kind of a few attempts, she asked me um, if I could take an attempt because her gloves were really wet from the amniotic fluid and that was making it really challenging. So at that point, baby's like feet were very close to the introitus. So I was able to get both of the feet and just guide baby out. I say guide baby out. It takes a lot of, you're you're using, you're kind of taking what the pressure and the strength of what that uterus would be doing, but you're doing it from the outside. So it's not a gentle, like, glide. It, it took some work and it really took a lot of brain power of us making sure that we got baby through all those rotations of the pelvis in the way that usually intelligent babies do it naturally. And so making sure that baby went through all those rotations that we um, got baby out and baby was stunned when she was delivered and it was very hard on mom, very hard on mom. That was very painful. Um, baby was a bit stunned and so, but just really needed a few breaths and we had a great team. We were ready to do that. And baby came around really beautifully and was finally out. And so I wanted to name her like little, like Stormborn, like the, like the character. She really was born and she was tucked away during that tornado and then came out in a very dramatic way. I think um, we had all the siblings in there still. I think everyone was pretty, it's, it's a pretty... Um, unique experience for everyone um we did end up her placentas were fickle and we did end up calling um an ambulance while we were trying to deliver placentas just because we wanted them there because we were having some blood loss amber did end up doing a manual removal to get both the placentas out and they were some of the biggest healthiest placentas i have seen it was really impressive um, and so once they were out, um, I think ambulance started an IV on her. They were really wonderful. Started an IV and got her some fluids and said as long as she was comfortable staying home and we were comfortable staying home that we could do that. And so we stayed home. So really it was a, such ended up being such a beautiful birth for both the babies despite all the the drama of a tornado in the middle and thankfully, there wasn't a um, lot of damage other than some vehicles on the freeway. And um, we we're able to stay home for everything. And those babies are healthy and thriving and probably almost four years old now. Time moves fast. Going back to William Arthur Ward's quote from the beginning, the realists just adjust their sales and aren't midwives the ultimate realists adjusting to what's needed no matter what the elements i hope you enjoyed we'll see you next week with the next installment of this mini series <laughs> <laughs>